I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 18, which is the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, January the 13th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look at um, the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah. Today we're in the 41st chapter, verses 7 to 29. We're also in the uh, letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and then in the gospel according to Mark, the second chapter of the first 12 verses. Just a reminder, we're in the season of Epiphany, and so what we're looking at in the season of Epiphany is is the revelation of Jesus. So it's the, the becoming apparent, the making apparent of who he is to uh, the world. And so we see we're, we're continuing to get people who are, who are seeing for the first time and believing for the first time as well. <clears throat> In the Isaiah passage today begins with uh, the Lord making himself known and making it clear that he is the source of all good things. So when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. The God of Israel will not forsake them. I'll open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. So so he says when the poor and needy need water, I will provide. And it's not just he's going to provide a trickle of water. He's going to provide abundantly. In other words, the, the wilderness will be a pool of water. There will be open rivers on the bare heights, fountains in the midst of the valleys and in the dry land, springs of water. And, and it's the way that he would do things, right? Because when they're in the wilderness, for instance, and Moses strikes the rock, what happens, right? Water comes out. And, and I've mentioned this before. I'm sure one of my, um, the most, probably my favorite uh, seminary professor was a guy named Alan Ross. And Alan talked about this and, and that the, the um, non-believing <laughs> Uh, liberal Christians would say things like, well, yes, the, these things happen in the wilderness. The, the uh, calcification on a rock will build up, and, and where there was a spring, now there would be—you you just have to crack that open, and the, and the water comes out. You just have to know where it is, and they demonstrate it. He said, I've seen it demonstrated several times in the wilderness, and, and every time there was about enough water to fill a Dixie cup— nowhere close to being able to provide for the needs of 600,000 people and their animals. And so the Lord provides abundant resources. He said, I'll put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I'll set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the whole hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. So what he's saying is, is that I'll make the, the wilderness and the desert fruitful. I'll make them um, a different kind of place. You can't do it, but I can, is what he's saying. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what's to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. 
that we may be dismayed and terrified. In other words, he's calling to the gods of the nations, prove yourselves, do something, do something useful, and let's see if you're really gods. We'd like you to prove that in the same way that Elijah on Mount Carmel did. Hey, I got a test for you, right? So there, there hadn't been any rain for a long time. So let's see if your God can just call down fire from heaven. Let's see if you can do that. Let's see if your gods can do those kinds of things. And then the Lord did that thing, even after the prophets of Baal went around cutting themselves in order to uh, entice Baal to do something. I'll harm myself, and he doesn't certainly doesn't want my God doesn't want me to be harmed. So no. And so the God doesn't do anything because he is nothing and he is unable to do anything. And and that's when Elijah begins taunting him. Maybe you should yell louder, or scream louder, because maybe he's he's on the toilet is actually what he says, or maybe he's asleep. So the Lord ends that little passage with, behold, you're nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay, who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he's right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's no one. Among these, there's no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So God's basically calling out the gods of the nations and saying, come on, demonstrate your power. I've done that, and I can do more and will do more to satisfy the needs of my people. But you come show yourselves. Let's let's see. Let's have a little competition between us. And so at the end of it, he, the, the sum total is it's nothing. And I called the one from the north, he says. That's the... Um, Nebuchadnezzar, I called him, and he's coming, and he'll know me, and we know that he does ultimately come to know the Lord of heaven and earth. And so he says, you're not doing it. It's not your God who's doing this work. It's me. It always is me. In the gospel, Jesus returns to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So in other words, basically you've got, you could see this huge crowd of people pressing against the home where he's staying. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I mean, no obstacle was too great for these guys. What they wanted to do for their friend was to get him in front of Jesus so that he could be healed. That's the only place where the potential lay for this guy's problem to be fixed. And so he comes down, and Jesus sees their faith, and he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And, you know, the first time, when you read that, the first thing you kind of think is, Jesus, it's his legs. You know, it's it's not a matter of forgiveness of sins. And then other people will say, well, he's doing this to provoke the Pharisees. And it works, because the scribes are sitting there, and they're questioning in their hearts, what does this man... Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so the people will say, well, he did this to provoke the Pharisees. I don't believe Jesus did unnecessary things. I mean, I believe that this forgiveness was a necessary part of the healing. 
And I believe that because he doesn't always do that. And so I believe that the, the paralysis is in some way a result of sin. And the first thing that needed to happen was he needed to be forgiven of the sin in order for the healing to be affected. And Jesus is not interested just in the physical body. He's interested also in the spirit and the soul of a person as well. And so both these things would have been necessary. The, the healing without the forgiveness would bespeak um, that the, the body is what matters at some level and that the other things can go unattended and he can deal with that separately. It's not a one-stop shop, in other words. And so Jesus uh, responds to them. He perceives in their spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk? I mean, there's a proof involved in that second one. It's it's much more difficult thing to say to somebody, get up and walk, because now I'm going to be able to see whether or not you have that power, like we looked at in that first lesson from Isaiah. And so here, there's a demonstration of power that would encompass also the lesser. So the forgiveness would be affected at the same time, and it's going to be done without any kind of sacrifice. This is going to happen. So, so the man actually, that they wanted him to be healed. He ends up with something far greater than just physical healing. He, he receives forgiveness literally from the mouth of God. Can you imagine anything greater than that? I mean, Jesus is uh, crucifixion certainly speaks a word, but to hear God's speak to you and say, your sins are forgiven, would be like the most powerful thing I think could ever even be. And you would question in your heart, can, can that really be true? It's the same way that the when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and the people ask, what must we do to be saved? And, Jesus, and, and Peter says, repent and be baptized. I mean, their first reaction had to be, that can't possibly be enough contrition for um, forgiveness for for crucifying Messiah. But it is, because his blood on that cross, his death on that cross covers all sin, all sin, no matter how heinous those sins might be. And so he says, but so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So here we know Jesus can heal. Everybody there knows Jesus can heal. They've seen it. And so now what we get is, is a demonstration and a revelation of other things beyond physical healing. There's more than that in the package that Jesus offers to us. It's more than just physical healing. It's more than just things of earth. No, it's a, it's a permanent, it's an eternal healing of the soul through the forgiveness of sins. In the epistle today, Paul writing to the Ephesians says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's primarily writing to this church that is a primarily Gentile congregation. He says, you know, you used to be the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is the physical thing. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the saddest place I think you could ever be, right? But that's who we were. And Paul's reminding us that until we turn to Christ and put our full faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord of our lives, then, then we are without hope and without God. No matter what we might think we are, we are that. And so we need to accept our status. Remember yesterday what he had said is you were dead. And so now, not only were you dead, you didn't even have the possibility of life because you were separated from the only one who can give life. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, both being the circumcised and the uncircumcised in the flesh, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that existed between us by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And so he, what he did, because he fulfilled the law, then he became for us the perfect sacrifice for sin, and he became our own fulfillment of the law as his righteousness, as one who fulfilled it all, is imputed to us who believe. So that dividing line has brought, been brought down, and now we are one. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing that law of commandments. He abolished it by fulfilling it, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, circumcised and uncircumcised, are all in him, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul says, it's not just that you're reconciled to God— It's not just the peace that you now have with God. It's the peace among brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether they be Jews or Gentiles, those things don't matter anymore, he says. And he says it again and again and again in his letters. And what he's saying is is that there shouldn't be any division between you in the church because you're one in Christ. And that's the most important thing. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so what we're seeing here is Paul's Trinitarian theology of, of the spirit binding these things together, bearing witness to us so that we can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So Paul's pulling together all of those who have borne witness to Yahweh and saying that that those who are apostles and those who are prophets have been preaching the same message, which is this one God who can bring life and give life to his people. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The most important stone in the building is the cornerstone. It's what locks everything together and holds everything in place. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that's exactly what's going on. He says that the church is important. The church of those who believe who have fellowship with the Father through the Son, who have fellowship with one another through the 
through the blood of Christ, and now you're being built together into a dwelling place of God by God's Spirit. And so Paul couldn't be clearer, I don't think, about the Trinitarian nature of his faith. And that takes an extraordinary man to be able to do that. But mostly what it takes is the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in one extraordinary man through whom now God can do great things because he is so completely committed to God's agenda, no matter what it costs him, no matter what anything else may mean because he believes completely in that God and he believes completely in the sacrifice of Jesus and he believes completely that Jesus' resurrection from the dead bespeaks his resurrection from the dead at all. He became a fearless man because he walks before the Lord, doing his will in all things.